Well, what a great day. I feel, you know, like we have four children and they all have kids. And sometimes we have one family over to the house. Sometimes we'll have two, once in a while, three. But what's the best is when everyone's there together. It's a little bit crazy, a little bit crowded, but it's really, really, it's just such a blessing. It's just such a good thing to see all of you here uh, today. And wow, I see many rows here where people actually did slide in, so kudos to you. Extra blessing for you today. <laughs> My good friend Tori uh, shared this with me during worship. Uh, Tori is a prophet, and, um, and uh, we don't call everybody a prophet, and just because a person's gifted prophetically, we don't dub them a prophet, but Tori is one of the guys that I would say is a prophet, and um, he had a word that he shared with me earlier that I want him to share with the church right now. All right, now I'm just going to expand it just a teeny bit. When, when we were, well, actually Friday, I, I got to share my testimony at the young adult thing, and, and just the theme of me sharing my testimony was discerning your day of visitation. Like, I know that God lives with us, you know, but... There's times he manifests his presence. And, and as they shared about Asbury, and, and there was just this collectiveness about us all being here at once. And then we, we all entered a place, and I, I knew that we entered, this morning I knew we, we entered a sovereign moment with God. And, you know, so when you have a day of visitation where God starts manifesting his presence, and that becomes one of those Kairos moments, mm -hmm. um, you just have to step into it. Jordan said something about professors canceling classes. And it's like they knew to cancel. Mm -hmm. They knew, they recognized the moment, they recognized what God was doing, and, and they, they adjusted their life. And I just think, I think we need to be kind of on the edge of our seat, on our tippy toes, waiting and watching and responding very quickly to whatever God does in the moment. Now. Mm -hmm. Awesome, Tori. Thank you. Thank you. Good word. <clears throat> and I just pray, Father, uh, we receive that word as from you, that you are inviting us, that you, you took us into something today, and you are inviting us back in. You're inviting us to be alert, to be aware, and to be ready for those moments that you sovereignly move. And we ask you to do more. We just ask you, Father, to do more, release more in Jesus' name. Here in our church, in our city, and Lord, we don't have to be the first. We don't have to be the only. If, if this happens in 50 churches across the city, we'll rejoice greatly. And so we just, we, we love you. We thank you for your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, something that's interesting to me is that the first time I experienced God's presence was in the winter of 71, lapsing over into 72, that season. There had just been a, uh, a revival at Asbury. And that was part of the Jesus People movement. And it was a big deal. And they, the, the little Methodist church in our town had uh, several students from the school come up and share. And as they shared, I just felt God's presence like never, ever before. And then I kind of went into cessationism for close to 20 years and, and then came back into this. And, and, uh, and I recognize now that that was so much God's presence at that moment. It was incredible. But uh, it's, it's just a wonderful thing to see you all here. I don't think it's an accident that we had a service today with the whole house, the whole family in the house all at once. I don't think that's an accident. 
I don't, I don't know, uh, this might, I don't know if God's been waiting in heaven saying, okay, when are they going to get everybody in the house together? I've got this whole thing loaded down at Asbury, ready to go. But uh, I, I'm not that narcissistic to think that that's the case. But uh, that thought did float through my mind quickly. Well, about a month ago, I gave a message about a, a new vision for our church. But uh, at the time I said this, it's not really new. It's, it's been on our hearts since the beginning to make disciples who make disciples. When Lori was saved, you, if you were here a year ago, you heard her interview the lady that led her to the Lord and then um, discipled her. And it was making a disciple to make disciples. And when I, when I came to know the Lord, I was dis- that was through the Navigators. When I came to know the Lord, I was discipled through Campus Crusade. And the whole thing was about... We're going to help you do this so, so you can help other people do it. And since the beginning, that's been Jesus' mind. That's been his heart. And in, in the history of the church in America and many parts of the world, there has been more of a tendency to go for the, you know, the large group settings. And of course, you can't, you can't uh, criticize the large group when you realize on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 people joined the church all at once, Okay. So there's, there's room for that, and there's a, it's a wonderful thing, but uh, God's heart is that we do that, but that we also take very seriously this whole charge to be disciples who make disciples. And, and so when we say it's not new, what, what I mean by that is it's been our heart all along, it's been Jesus' heart all along. We've taken different, different approaches to it but really believe that we are at a sovereign moment of God right now. And like, like Tori mentioned, the kairos moment. If you don't know what that means, in uh, the Greek language, there are two words for time. One of them is chronos. You, you get the word chronology from it. And if you think of a chronology, you're thinking of a movement of time. That's what chronos is, a movement of time. Kairos is a moment in time. It's just refers to an individual moment in time. And oftentimes, when, uh, when God works, you, you call that a kairos moment because it is a moment in time God's doing something. It's a moment of opportunity. We believe that this is a moment of opportunity for us as a church to enter into something more than we have to this point. In fact, Micah Turnbow, who leads our prophetic ministry here, uh, Micah had a dream recently where in this dream, he saw a dam, and the dam was filling up with water. And, uh, and, and then he saw Lori and me, and uh, I think in the dream, the Lord spoke to us and said to build channels. And so we knew what that meant, I guess, in the dream, because we got down our hands and he started taking mud and building material and building channels, like, like tunnels, like, like big pipes, big tubes. And then the rest of the staff joined in, and after a few uh, moments in the dream, we had all of these uh, channels built. And Micah said that the whole time, the dam was just vibrating with power, you know, ready to, ready to erupt. And then when it did erupt, he said, rather than washing down and washing everything away, all of the water went into those channels that we had built. And so it was the, the, the rush of water, the release of God's presence 
was, was, was channeled into these systems, into these, um, these, these ways that we had created for people to, to come into a greater, deeper relationship with Jesus. And the way he took that and the way we take it is that entering into this discipleship emphasis where we are going to, we're going to emphasize how do we train people to make disciples, how do we become disciples, how do we train people to help other people become disciples, that that all fits into God's plan for revival. And it all fits into God's plan to pour his spirit and his presence out upon us, upon this city, upon this region. And so it fits with, I think, Tori's word this morning as well. And so one of the words we got, and really this message, this series, we're calling it a vision series, and, and it's really, we're, got, we're, we're hitting on some foundational truths, foundational issues that we believe really are part of discipleship, but also lay the foundation for discipleship, for healthy discipleship, and, and for, for uh, intentional discipleship. But we got this word from God a month or two ago, a couple months ago, maybe six months ago, and it was this, as we were contemplating this, this new move into discipleship, it was this. It was start soon, go slow. So start soon, go slow. And so we're starting soon and we are going to go slow. Now what that means is we're not going to have this big, this big promotional thing where we're, we're, our, our, you know, our goal is we got to get 90% of the people in the church into this new group thing that we have going on. No, we're going to start slow. And we're going to build, and we're going to allow God to breathe on it because we believe he's leading us into it, and, and it'll be God's presence that builds momentum, and God's spirit that builds as, as we move ahead in this. And so, um, I guess I say that partly for any of you out there that are nervous and thinking, well, what's going to change? Um, we're going to go slow, okay? So, just know that. But we are going to go because this is what God's calling us to. And, um, and, and we're excited about it. I hope you are too. But uh, let's get started on this, okay, right now. The, the foundational to being a disciple is understanding the story as to why the world is in the shape it is. It doesn't take, a, it doesn't take much to look around and say, recognize the world's in deep shape, deep trouble. The world's broken. It, there's, there's pain and heartache, so much so that, and, and part of it is just we're so used to it, we're, we're so desensitized to it. What is the death toll now from the earthquake? 50,000? Something like that. And, and we read that, and then we go on and we read the next page about a mass shooting somewhere, and the next page, mass starvation somewhere in the world. And the next page, this nation is building up to, to attack that nation. And, and it's so easy for us just to become jaded towards all of that. But the world is in a mess. And how do you explain that? And what's the answer to that? Because if, if we can answer those things and understand God's answers to them, then the, the answers that Jesus accepted and that he, that, he, uh, that he taught, then we're in a position to follow Jesus in a new, fresh way. And when I say that, it, it's, I, I say that because how, 
whatever you view as the cause of the world's condition, that's going to view, that, that's going to impact your view of the solution, and it's going to impact your view of your involvement in it. And, and we all have some involvement. If nothing else, just reading the horrible things that are happening and then doing our best to shut our hearts off from the pain that that could lead us into if we just gave ourselves to it. But we all respond and we all have some involvement in it. And uh, we all react to the condition of the world in, uh, in some way. And, and it really needs to be the Jesus way. So that's where we're going with this. When I was in seminary, probably 1978, uh, Lori and I were invited. We were at church. we attended a little church out in the country. Actually, it started it was little when we went there. It blew up, and became a big church very quickly. Not because we came; we just came at the right moment. Okay. <laughs> uh, but um, friends of ours invited us over for dinner, and so Lori and the the wife jumped in the car with their three little children, probably five and under. And the dad and I jumped in our car, and I think the ladies were ahead of us. They took off, and we stayed behind and talked. And then as we're driving down the road, um, out in this area where there were no other houses or anything, there was a, a, like a brand-new two-story house. And it was, looked like it was still a little bit under construction, but it looked like it could have been inhabited too. And the thing was, there was smoke pouring out of the eaves of the house, just pouring out, just rolling out all around the house of the eaves. And so we realized, well, this house is on fire. And so we stopped, and we ran up to the house, and nobody else around anywhere. No cell phones, so we couldn't call the fire company. But uh, we're thinking, well, maybe there are people in the house. And so we go around, pound on all the doors, and try to get all the doors. Can't open anything. You know, it's a new house, so it's pretty solid. I'm not sure we really thought about kicking the door in. But we wanted to get in the house to see if there were people in there that needed help and um, could not get in. But there was a ladder lying there. So we grabbed that ladder and ratcheted it up to the second floor. And my buddy crawls up that ladder in his full long, his long trench coat and his suit, because that's what we did in those days when we went to church. And he's trying to look in the bedroom window and he said, there's too much smoke, I can't see anything. So I picked up a big rock and I said, here, smash the window. Then you can see, and I, and I tossed him that rock up, he grabbed it, and did any of you know that oxygen of fire is not a good thing? <laughs> is there any firemen here? I should apologize to you right now if there are firemen in the house, okay? <sighs> he smashed that window open, and smoke, first of all, poured out, and then we realized this was not a good thing. And so he you know, came down, and as we're staying there trying to figure out what to do, uh, we heard fire trucks coming. And so we thought, well, okay, the experts are on their way. Kind of looked at each other, shrugged our shoulders, and got in the car and drove off. Now, if I had that to do over again, I would have stayed. I, we were, I guess, not very smart. We didn't stay. <laughs> we should have stayed uh, and explained what we had done. But our wives were waiting for us. And so uh, we, we went. But, uh, and, and by the way, I've thought this through. It was a small town. If somebody had been in that house and died, we would have heard about that. All right. So no, nobody died in the house. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. And, um, 
but um, you know, we all respond. You see a house on fire, today you're going to get your cell phone out and call 911. Uh, we didn't have any idea what to do. We, we did some dumb things and, and then kind of shrugged our shoulders and, and drove off. A lot of people are just going to start off by shrugging their shoulders and driving off because you just don't know quite what to do. But we need to understand what's going on. If we had been firemen, we would have had a better idea because we would have had more knowledge and understanding. You need to understand what's going on. Now, does the fact that we stopped and tried to help, does that make us heroes? Answer is no. But in another respect, yes. So I saved a life that day. When that smoke came pouring out of the window, I yelled to my friend, get off that ladder. <laughs> he jumped right off that ladder, broke his ankle, but uh, no, he didn't. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we need to know how to respond. We need to know the right story so we can respond. And because the, you're, we're going to have people that rush in not understanding and oftentimes make the situation worse. We're going to have people who just uh, jump straight into the shrug of the shoulders and what can I do and, and drive off. And then there are also those who are talking when they drive past that house on fire and have three little kids in the back seat and don't even see the smoke. And so there are those who are talking like wives, mothers with little children in the back seat. Do you remember the story? Lori and and his wife and their three kids drove past that house before us, okay? They didn't see it. So you're going you're gonna to have all sorts of responses to it. But let's, let's, let's move ahead in this. Um, being a disciple of Jesus means understanding the condition of the world from his perspective and understanding what he's asking of us and what role we, we can have and, and really knowing how to accomplish that role in our culture. So... The, the problem is there are many narratives arising from the, from the fallen world itself. There are all these stories about why the world's in the condition it is from the fallen world. And then there's the biblical account. And what we're going to look at today is God's story because we need to understand and embrace God's story fully. But uh, we also need to understand some of the false stories some of the uh, false narratives as to what's happening out there. And as we do that, it's, it really opens our eyes to understand better how we can be involved. So three aspects of being a disciple are this, or an apprentice. Do you know an apprentice, literally, on average, they spend 80% of their time doing and 20% studying. That's what an apprentice does. You get that 80% doing, 20% studying. That's what the apostles did. Probably 90% of their time was spent with Jesus, 10% listening to him teach and study, the rest doing. And, and one of the things about the Vineyard Movement is we, were, we originated under the thinking that we study to do. We don't study to learn. We study to do. 
And what we learn, we want to put into practice. That was something John Wimber would say. We study to do. In fact, when we started this church, I had that in the original document uh, to describe this church body. We're going to study to do. That's discipleship. But um, so, so being a disciple is being an apprentice. It's making a conscious and determined commitment to say yes, to follow, and then renewing that commitment every day. And then it is learning to know and imitate the rabbi and the teachings of his life, following his life. And then it's the ability to recognize and resist false teaching that tries to worm its way in. False teaching tries to worm its way in. And I'm going to tell you why that is in just a moment. But Jesus warned his followers. He said this, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, leaven was something that worked invisibly. You put leaven in a, in a lump of dough, and it just multiplies itself, and it just spreads through the whole dough. But you, you, as you're sitting there looking at it, you don't see it happening. It's a secretive type of a thing. He said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, the false narratives of the Pharisees, their false teaching about why the world is the way it is and what the, what the solution is. And uh, in, in 1 Timothy 4.4, Paul warned Timothy that some would turn away from the faith and turn to fables. Now, when I describe to you this, this, this one ideology that's uh, still around today, you're going to see what that means, the whole idea of fables. And then Peter said this, he said that some would secretly introduce destructive heresies. And so it's important that we not only know the truth, but that we follow these warnings and understand how to recognize some of the secret heresies that can actually creep in to our belief systems and our belief system and life as a church body. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10. He said, though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That word arguments there means, uh, really, it could be translated ideologies. Okay, Luke preached on this a few months ago, but an ideology is this. It's a set of ideas and beliefs around politics, economics, social issues, religion, and power, some, some gathering of those topics that tries to explain the world's problems and has the potential to impact an entire culture. So it's a set of ideas around social issues, politics, economics, uh, spirituality, and power that tries to explain the world's condition and has the potential to impact an entire culture. Now, John Mark Comer said this. He said, an ideology happens when we highlight certain truths and ignore others. When we take certain things and we blow them up and then we ignore other things that are equally true, and we are not trying to hold them in balance. And that's why God's story is not an ideology, because God's story is truth. God's story is the way it is. And all the rest are just ideas 
uh, myths and fables that man comes up with, doing, doing all, oftentimes just with great, great, um, uh, with great motives the best they can. Now, God's story is this. We talk about the kingdom so much, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But God's story is this, that God existed for all eternity. We don't understand that. God exists three in one. We don't understand that. But God existed for eternity in perfect harmony and union. But God decided to create the world and to create humanity. And he wanted to partner with humanity over the earth. And so he created humanity, Adam and Eve, put them in a garden and told them they were in charge not only of that garden but of the whole earth. And that then he was going to come and be with them on a regular intimate basis. He's going to come and walk with them. Now, God's enemy, Satan, stepped into the picture and tempted them, causing them to doubt God and, and, and to doubt God's goodness and God's intentions towards them. And God had really only given them one simple restriction, and that was just don't eat the fruit from this one tree. All the rest of the trees of the garden you can eat, just that one. Don't eat that. And under Satan's influence, they ate of that fruit. But it wasn't eating the fruit. It was believing Satan more than they believed God that was the real problem. And in effect, what they did was switched teams. They switched sides in that moment. And they took the authority they had, that they were what they were over, and they were in submission to God, but over the earth. And they made themselves in submission to Satan, but still God did not take this position of being over the earth away from them which gave Satan direct access to the earth. And all the pain and the heartache and the havoc that we see wreaked in this planet and among humanity is all the result of the fallenness of humanity and the, uh, Satan taking advantage of that. And, and Satan, with evil domination, using his, his position to wreak havoc and to cause poverty and to cause grief and hatred and, and everything else that we see in the world. That's God's story. God's story doesn't end there, though, because God sent his son as a savior into the world to pay for sin, to take sin on our behalf, to reconcile us to God, not just to get us into heaven, but to reconcile us with God and to restore us to positions of authority so that under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit, we can now continue the mission that God originally gave to Adam and Eve, albeit a mission now that is aimed at a broken world, whereas theirs was not aimed at a broken world. And so we find ourselves now in a place where we have a Savior who died for us, who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who poured out the Holy Spirit on the church and empowers us now to carry his message into the world. And when we had Derek Morphew here, we asked him, how do you see, historically, how has Christianity changed cultures? And you know what his answer was? He didn't say by political protest. He didn't say, you know, by getting the right people in office or having all Christians run for office or anything like that. Nothing wrong with, with, with having Christians run for office. I don't mean to say that at all love more and more of them. But what he said was this. He says, by sheer preponderance of numbers. He said, Christianity changed Rome 
because so many people got saved and, and came into real relationship with Jesus where they submitted their lives to scriptural truth and they were living the way he wanted, that God wanted them to. And so just the sheer preponderance of numbers, he said, is what actually shifts things. But the, um, you know, we're here to, to, to be part of that story of God's work in the world until Jesus returns. And when he returns, then the world will be made perfect and right. But when we talk about ideologies, moving back to the, the thought of ideology, when you're raised in an ideology, you cannot see it. It's just the air you breathe. You shrug your shoulders and say, well, everyone believes that. It must be right. And you don't even, you never question it. You have to actually be taken out of the culture and even in that, be confronted with truth so that you can look back at that ideology and recognize the failures in it. And so that's one thing. Second thing is this. Ideologies always have a spiritual base. They're, they're never, they are never purely secular. They always have a spiritual base. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they are not able to see the glory of Christ and come to him. That's what an ideology does. It blinds the minds of unbelievers. It's a spiritual thing. And the third thing is this, that every ideology has an actual, intelligent, spiritual power behind it, energizing it. Nazism or World War II, would anyone doubt that there was demonic power behind Hitler's rise to power and, and the power actually of Nazism? Uh, mo most people would just say that's a given. There's always a spiritual power behind it. And that's what makes it so, so difficult and tricky because there's this spiritual deception that comes with the ideology itself. And so we have to be alert, we have to be, um, we have to be wise. Now the ideology I wanna take a quick look at this morning is Gnosticism. This is one thing that Derek Morphew talked about. I read his book this week on it. And, um, and Gnosticism was an, an approach to the world that started to arise about the time of Christ actually, little bits and pieces of it started to, to come to the surface. And then during the first century, towards the end of the first century, when the New Testament was being written, there was what uh, Derek called incipient Gnosticism. It had not yet become a formal um, ideology, but the pieces were all there. And so you read in the New Testament different things that the New Testament authors said, like uh, the, the appearance of knowledge or the appearance of wisdom. And different places where that type of language was used, it was to refute the Gnostic viewpoints. Gnosticism, the word Gnostic means knowledge. It's the Greek word for knowledge. And honestly, I don't think it was any accident that it grew up about the same time as Christ. That's when you really start to see it. And then it became formalized in the second century right after the apostles all died was when it became a formal belief system. And it was originally part of the church until the church leaders recognized what it really was and uh, expelled them from the church. 
And this whole thing, this ideology, uh, was a form of religion that really tried to infiltrate the young church. And God gave the leaders of the church throughout the Mediterranean world wisdom to recognize it for what it was and, and to push it out of the church so that it would not become part of the church. Nevertheless, Gnosticism still survives to today. There are Gnostic churches in the Middle East. There are some Gnostic churches here in America. And, um, and there are uh, Gnostic influences just about everywhere we look. Now, here's what Gnosticism is, okay? I'm going to tell you just the kind of like the mythology of this whole thing. It starts out with this premise. It starts out with this understanding that there was a time when there was nothing, just nothingness. And then within the nothingness, what became the supreme being started to become self-aware somehow. No one knows how. He just started to become self-aware. And over time, he developed in self-awareness to the point that he actually was able to think rationally and make decisions. And that was the point at which he became alive. And that is the, the, the monad, the monad. There's other names for it, but I'm just going to stick with that one name for simplicity's sake. Now, the monad emanated other beings. And the way Derek put it was, think of an amoeba and how one amoeba, you know, it starts to have a bulge and then it splits off and there's another amoeba there. It was something like that. And, and within Gnosticism, there are different... Uh, viewpoints on this. Some say that Sophia was the first god that was emanated. Others say that there were a dozen gods emanated before Sophia, but that's pretty much irrelevant. There was this goddess named Sophia who was, uh, who was the wisdom and the divine mother, and she was, she was emanated from the monad. And she became so enthralled with the monad and, and so infatuated with the monad and developed this uncontrollable desire to know the monad. And in Gnosticism, uncontrollable desire is something that's bad. And so she was exiled, according to some. She was exiled to darkness. But when she was in the darkness, uh, she had this thing happen that they call the great, the great abortion. She was emanating another version of herself, but something happened, and that, that version did not come out right. They call it an abortion, and that version came out evil and stupid, and that was what they would call Lesser Sophia, and then Lesser Sophia emanates this godlike being out of her that they called the Builder, and the Builder was one who was himself coming out of evil. And so the builder himself was evil. And the builder himself uh, was in darkness and, and not an intelligent being, not like the upper level ones at the very beginning of all of these emanations that happened. So they, they actually have a staircase of emanations that happened down, 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 down. And um, I'll tell you about that in a moment. But the... The builder was called the demiurge. That word means builder. And Gnostics identify the demiurge with Yahweh. 
of the Old Testament. This is how Yahweh came into being. He was this lower level being created in darkness by an evil force. And so he was a malevolent God. And he himself then took it upon himself to create matter and to create the earth. And these gods that lived in the spirit realm, they never wanted to have matter. They didn't want to have the earth created. They, they were just perfect with, with their um, mon, you know, monism of one level of existence, which is spirit and spirit alone. But now Yahweh has stepped in and ruined everything by creating matter. And matter is juxtaposed against spirit in this thinking. Spirit was perfect and pure. Matter is corrupt and evil. And so the builder made these mistakes. First of all, by creating matter itself. Because all the gods needed was, was spirit. And this creates a dualism now of matter which is evil and spirit which is good. Second thing, he, the mistake he apparently made was that he trapped these new beings he created in matter, in human bodies, which are part of matter, and all matter is what? It's evil. And so he trapped them in this matter, and then he made them binary. He made them binary, and this was a big deal because the gods had multi-gender, multi-gendered. They were not limited to two genders. And here this Yahweh guy, he comes along and he creates the male and female, which was, uh, which was a distortion of their view of the spirit realm. And so all the gods are really up in arms against Yahweh. And then part of it is too that they say that Yahweh wasn't very smart and he actually forgot that these other gods existed. And he actually truly believes that he is the one true God. And so it's very convoluted and very, very, um, uh, very um, deceptive. But in the process, someone in that side, the spirit side, took a handful of light and flung it out across humanity. And have you ever uh, put grass seed out? You know, you're throwing your grass seed out and um, some of it lands in big clumps and some of it lands in little places, and then some of there are places where nothing hits at all. And so according to Gnosticism, the light that was, that was spread out, uh, some people got a whole lot of light. And they are the people, of course, that were destined to become what? Gnostics. They were the, they were the highly enlightened ones. And then there were those that got a little bit of light, and they said, well, those are spiritually-minded people, kind of like regular Christians, because remember, at the very beginning, this whole thing was still part of the church. And so they said regular Christians get a little bit of light. But then there are whole swaths of people in the world that have no light whatsoever. Hopeless. No light whatsoever. And so that leads to all sorts of problems and, and conclusions and in, uh, in, in difficulties in application of life. But in the garden, what happened was the serpent freed Eve from the evil Yahweh and his rules. And so she didn't come, he didn't deceive her, he freed her, according to Gnosticism. And Jesus came not to die on the cross for us, Jesus came to show us how we can get in touch with our inner light if hopefully we have some. And so that's all Jesus came for. And besides that, 
the human body is evil, and, and so a God could not have actual contact with the human body. So Jesus never actually became a person. He just looked like a person. He took on a form, an apparition of a person. And, and so, in fact, some forms say this. They say that um, the Jesus who went to the cross, when, when they forced Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross, they say that on the way, Jesus, through an incantation of magic, made himself look like Simon the Cyrene and made Simon look like him. And so to the Roman soldiers, when they looked at Simon, they saw Jesus. And when they looked at Jesus, they saw Simon. So they let Jesus go and they crucified Simon. And then get this, Simon must not have had any light because Jesus stood back and laughed at him as he was crucified. That's all part of the Gnostic thinking and teaching, at least some segments of it. And, and so it, it goes on and on like that, far more than I could describe here. But salvation comes by recognizing the inner light you have. When you recognize your inner light, you get in touch with your inner light, and then it starts to expand, then you are on your path to salvation so that when you die, your light will go back to the monad. And that's where the whole thing's headed, is to the monad wants all the light back and just to be one thing again. And so it's, um, but in order to do that, you have to have secret passwords in order to climb the, remember I talked about the stair step of God's. You have to go to each step and the God at that step, you have to have a secret word, password, and he'll let you through to the next level, new password. You have to have all these passwords that you get somehow in life uh, as, as you go along. And as I said, the goal is to all go back into the one being and that God, the monad, is actually developing. And the more of us that get in touch with our inner light, the better God he's going to be in the end because he's still growing and developing. And so, uh, so much of that uh, is just so foreign to our thinking. But this whole idea of dualism, uh, spirit and matter, spirit good, matter evil, that means only the spirit counts. And what that led to among uh, Gnostics was this, either asceticism where they say, well, I'm gonna beat my body into submission, Paul references that, or I'm gonna beat, you know, I'm gonna beat my body into submission, or it led to license, which was saying, well, the physical body is already evil, it's corrupt, it can't be saved, so live it up. You know, just give in to your desires and live it up because all God really, all the monad really cares about is that inner light. I've heard that many times in church life. Any of you who have been very intensely involved in discipling or ministering to other people have heard that too. And it goes like this. I know that was wrong, but God looks at the heart. All God cares about is the heart. The, you know, the, the body doesn't make any, what I do out here with my body makes no difference. God cares about the heart. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Okay, that, that's the effect of this type of philosophy of Gnosticism, of the separation, the dualism of spirit and flesh, and, uh, and, and just going, going to seed with that. But um, to find your real identity, you have to look inward. And you have to spend massive amounts of time looking inward. And then when you find your identity inward, then you're, you're on the right path, you're on the right track. But Christianity teaches that 
You find your identity, yeah, by looking in, as the Bible tells us, you know, in, 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 in a respect and in moderation, but you also have to be out. Jordan's going to talk about this in, in a couple of weeks. You have to be in community. You know, I might decide I'm a, you know, I'm a fantastic um, prophet. Well, if I, if, if I just think that to myself, great, but to test that, I have got to be in community with people. And I start giving words to people and they're all wrong. Or I start giving prophetic words to people and it leads them astray. You know, that, that's how I discover my identity is how, I, how, how, we, how we interact with each other is how we discover our identity. Because I, I find out what are my limits, what am I good at, and I find that out in community. Whereas in the Gnostic view, you find that out by deep penetration into yourself, inner ID, your inner, inner, inner person. And um, this is really the basis of the accusations of hate speech today. There is so much emphasis. In fact, one author I read recently uh, who was evaluating culture for the last couple hundred years said that we live in, in a psychological era. Everything is psychological. Everything is internal. It's all about me. It's all about me figuring myself out. And if I figure myself out, don't you dare try to tell me I'm wrong. And this whole thing of the inner light well, I'm getting in touch with my inner light. This is why we hear people say, what's your truth? This is my truth. As if truth is something that to just be decided upon or bandied about, and, and you have your truth and I have my truth, and even if they totally contradict each other, it makes no difference. But with this thinking in our culture today, if you realize this idea of the inner light being where your salvation comes from, and someone is finding their inner light, and they're coming up with it, and they think they're on the right track, they think they're on the right path, and the body makes no difference. So if I say something that contradicts or discourages them from the pursuit of their inner light, that is viewed as an assault. Just as when I was growing up, they said, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will what? Never hurt you. Not true anymore. Sticks and stones, yeah, doesn't make any difference what they do to your body. Your body's evil anyway and corrupt. But those words, if they contradict you and your pursuit of inner light or discourage you in your pursuit of inner light, then they're, they're, uh, they're you know, that's hate. You're, you're being hateful. Um, remember I said that the, um, the monad when he came to the ability to make decisions, that's when they considered him alive. And when you apply that to life today, a baby in the womb, it's assumed, cannot make a rational decision. Even a newborn can't make a rational decision. And therefore, they're not alive. The mother, she can make rational decisions, so she's alive, so she gets to, make, to decide whatever her inner light tells her to decide, and you and I can't contradict her because she has her inner light. And I'm going to end with this. this um, the, the levels of light, some get a lot of light, some light, no light. That leads to racism. That leads to uh, genocide. 
And actually part of the Gnostic theology, the Gnostic war theory is that wars of subjugation are necessary so that the nations that have more light can be more in control and, the, and ultimately it's going to help with the whole thing of the monad becoming one again at the end. And so th this influenced fascism and Nazism. It, it really did this thinking. There's a direct connection between Nazism and fascism and, uh, and, and this agnostic type thinking. So it, um, it, it isn't something that's just back there. It does impact us today as well. But uh, would you stand with me? So I want to say this. Let's not get caught up in an excessive focus inward. Focus inward appropriately, but embrace community. Second thing is this, elitism. Uh, you know, at this church, you can have a P&G executive uh, discipling someone who's homeless. We don't care. We're not looking at levels here. We're not saying this person has so much more of this than that, that it, that can't be. Third thing is this, um, avoid elitist spirit, elitism spiritually. Yeah, I mean, it's just natural for all of us to think, well, I have more wisdom than, than you. It's just, that, that's something all of us, even without Gnosticism in the background. But we have to resist that, this elitist mentality spiritually. We need to embrace humility. And then uh, mysticism as a, base for spirit, as a basis for spiritual growth. We've got to reject that and accept this just very simply that it is, uh, spiritual growth happens through the spiritual disciplines of scripture, prayer, worship, rest, obeying God, being in community, and yes, Holy Spirit filling me all the way through all of that. But I'm going to ask our prayer teams to come down right now. And uh, today I want this to be a day where, and anybody who's been down to Kentucky as well, would you come down? Those who have been to Kentucky, let's see. Uh, to what I mean by that, to Asbury. Come on down and let's have all... all... Uh, I don't get it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, all those who have been to Kentucky, you are enlightened. That's where the light... I go, oh, I guess that is where the light is right now, huh? Okay, so those that, that have been there, come on up and pray. And if you want to hunt one of these guys down... Uh, you can do that and ask them to pray for you specifically, those that, those that have been there. And um, I'm going to pray, and then you come on down. R run down. Rush down. Holy Spirit, uh, we thank you that you are the giver of truth. You are truth. You're the teacher. And we accept your revelation of the world's history and future. We accept the kingdom of God teaching and revelation of that. And we want to walk in that, in all the power that you can pour out. And we just ask you to pour out more and more and more. Guard our hearts. Give us wisdom, Lord, not to start searching for these things. But when you need to, Holy Spirit, draw some of these truths back up in our minds so that that preacher we're listening to on TV or uh, the person that says, I'm just a spirit trapped in a body uh, or, or, or that influence that, that we'll recognize it for what it is. And, and Father, bless this church as we go. Bless these people with your presence and your life and light to share with everybody they see. In Jesus' name, amen.